millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on Fan of History. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, we have another special guest today, don't we? I would 
like to introduce a fan of the fan of history, Enkidu. He's also from Sweden, like Dan, and he's going to talk to us today about the Epic of Gilgamesh. So, Enkidu, how about introduce yourself, and then we'll get started. Yeah, so, uh, hi, Bernie, and uh, thank you very much for letting me join the podcast. I've been listening to it for uh, quite some time, and I'm a huge fan of history. Uh, and yeah, my name is uh, Enkidu, and I'm going to talk about the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh uh, with you, Bernie. Awesome. That is, um, I'm so excited about this because, I mean, Enkidu, Enkidu is definitely a very good student on the um, Epic of Gilgamesh, and he'll tell you a little bit more about his background too, why that is. So actually, yeah, give us a little bit about your background, you know. I mean, Enkidu, that's definitely a Epic of Gilgamesh type name, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Now, um, I'm, uh, I'm of uh, Assyrian origin, so uh, uh, that's very much why my uh, father chose to name me uh, Enkidu. Um, so my, both my parents are from uh, Mesopotamia. And they come from a place in Mesopotamia that uh, used to be called in uh, Neo-Assyrian times uh, Kashyari, I think. Uh, oh, and it's uh, cool. like in modern-day Turkey. And uh, today the area is called uh, Tur Abdin. Um, so, um, yeah, that's a little bit about my background and why my uh, parents chose to name me after... Um, um, character in a very old epic yes and you live in sweden right yeah i live in sweden same as dan um nice and uh, yeah i was brought up here is there a large assyrian community in in sweden uh i mean yeah it's a big um it's a big assyrian community here in sweden and um in other parts of the world as well. I know uh, in the States, there are many Assyrians who live there. Oh, yeah. well, we got to find them. They'll probably love our podcast. Yeah, A lot I think of stuff so. about Assyria. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so yeah, we're going to talk about Gilgamesh. And then I, as I promised in the last podcast I did with Dan on the library of Ashurbanipal, I wanted to give a little bit more information just on how it was found, not really how it was found. We we covered that that physical copy, but just how it was um, literally found in the British Museum. So I have some notes. I'm going to talk about it, but I'm going to read right from this book that I got from. It's so funny. I got the book from my local library while I'm studying about the Library of Ashurbanipal, and it's called "The Buried Book: The Loss and Rediscovery of the Great Epic of Gilgamesh" by David Damrosh. It's like from maybe like 2007, something like that. But honest to gosh, it's a really good book. I think I read it twice already. I can't. I have to take it back to the library after we do this, record this podcast. Yeah, but, I'd really like to so, look into it because I, I, I yeah, think definitely. personally, like how the epic was discovered is like the that story is just like amazing and it's super interesting. Totally, just so amazing. So yeah, well, well. Um, I will. I would recommend listen to the other podcast when it's when it's when it's. Uh, well, by the time anybody's hearing this, this that one will be released on the on the library. So we'll have, um, you know, the information about the archaeological dig. But just I'm gonna I'm literally gonna mostly read. I'm gonna read a passage from this book. But so the background though is the first guy was uh, Sir Henry Rawlinson. He was 
you know, a British, a, I should say, um, a, Victor- a classic Victorian character. I mentioned on when I talked to Dan, like, he's just the guy who would be out in the field and say, oh, darn I, darn, I lost my leg from a tiger. Could you could you boys go find my leg for me, please? So he was like that kind of guy, just uh, all these adventures. Around, like, starting around 1835, he started, amongst his adventures, you know, as a soldier, he uh, was started working on cracking the code of cuneiform. And by 1860, he published his first volume of cuneiform inscriptions, it's called, yeah, the first volume of cuneiform inscriptions of Western Asia. He was about 50 years old at the time. And George Smith, now he's our main character here for this part of the topic, he was a young guy, just a, an engraver. He wasn't a scholar per se or anything, you know, officially a scholar. He was obviously a scholar because in his spare time, he decided to learn how to, you know, translate cuneiform. And they used to let the, yeah, right? So... They used to let the these people come into the museum and a couple of days a week, if you weren't, you know, a member or, or a, you know, official scholar, and try to help translate these tablets, which were literally like piles of rocks on tables, and they're trying to piece them together and then read them. So, um, so this is so that like around the 1840s is when they found them, but this is 1872 now. So this is like almost 25 years later. They find, you know, he finds this. So I'm going to just read it right from the, you know, the book from David Damrosh. No copyright issues here. Um, here we go. Forgotten for more than two thousand years, the Epic of Gilgamesh re-entered history on a brisk November day in 1872. Its twelve broken tablets had been mixed in among the hundred thousand fragments that Henry Laird and Hormand Rassam had shipped back to London from Nineveh a quarter century before. A hundred thousand fragments. I mean, really, right? So, for years, the epic lay cradled in the crates and drawers of the British Museum's massive collection, while scholars gradually deciphered the tablet's cuneiform script and began to read them. Slowly, an entire world was coming to light as the researchers worked through the huge jumble of materials before them. Receipts for oxen, slaves, and casks of wine, petitions to the Assyrian kings, contracts, treaties, prayers, and reports of omens the gods had planted in sheep's livers. Much of this material was of interest to only a handful of specialists, but then an assistant curator named George Smith came upon an electrifying passage. Here we go. Smith was working at a long table piled with tablets in a second-floor room overlooking the bare branches of the plane trees in Russell Square. He could read the tiny cuneiform markings only when enough light came through the tall windows. Fearful of fire, the museum's trustees had refused to allow gas lighting in the museum, and in 1872, there was no light bulbs. The museum did supply covered lanterns for a select number of senior staff, but Smith was too junior to enjoy the use of one. So on days of dense London fog, the museum would close and the entire staff would be sent home. So it must have been a clear day when George Smith came upon a piece of tablet whose lines referred to a floodstorm, a ship caught on a mountain, and a bird sent out in search of dry land. So you could imagine he was some like completely like amazed, couldn't believe he had you know found this after all this time. So uh, continue a little bit here. So now 
George Smith was onto something truly sensational. It was the first independent confirmation of a vast flood in ancient Mesopotamia, complete with a Noah figure and an ark. Yet, he could read only a few lines of the tablet, much of which was encrusted with a thick lime-like deposit. He desperately needed to know what was written beneath this crust. But um, So the museum had an expert restorer that was on contract. His name was Robert Reddy. He was a, a former tobacconist. And he was hired by the hour on the days that the museum was opened um, to the public. But he had to supplement his income with other work. And he had all these different methods to restore these tablets, but he kept them a secret. And he only told them to his four sons. So Reddy alone was the only one who could clean this tablet, but he was away on private business. So um, Smith's colleague, his name is Wallace Budge. He's he's becomes a more of a character in this soap opera later when him and um, him and Rassam have some battles, and then they, there's lawsuits and everything. But in any case, he says Smith was constitutionally a highly nervous, sensitive man, and his irritation with Reddy's absence knew no bounds. Reddy finally returned several excruciating days later and worked his magic, whereupon Smith took the tablet, I'm I'm quoting, I'm reading the book quoting what uh, Budge said, Smith took the tablet and began to read over the lines which Reddy had brought to light, and when he saw that they contained the portion of the legend he had hoped to find there, he said, I am the first man that, after more than 2,000 years, of oblivion has read that. So setting on the ta- he sets the tablet on the table. He jumped up and rushed about the room in a great state of excitement. And to the astonishment of those present, he began to undress himself. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how excited he was to find this tablet of the, you know, story of Noah written by somebody else. And I mean, that's just one part of the story as we'll get into it so. I, I just think that's amazing, uh, modern twist, modern part of the story of finding this epic of Gilgamesh that um, we're going to talk about today. I mean, so. like when you when you read that, like that when he said that he he was the first person to read in two thousand years, I actually got goosebumps. Because that's I mean, great, right? <laughs> imagine being that person who like cracks the code, and you just like I'm the first one who reads this in two thousand years. It's pretty amazing. It is so amazing. And, and then now after you, we talk about what this actually that he found was. I mean, it wasn't just that. It's this work of literature, right? I mean, rivals Homer for yeah. sure. And I think like when when it was discovered, like the flood story and uh, uh, that bit, like I think like uh, some people actually thought like this is the end of Christianity because like yeah. it was um, like a huge discovery. That like the Bible that people have been reading for two thousand years, there's like an earlier version of the pretty much exact same story. Uh, so. Um. Yep. But belief is a hard thing to crack, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they but, still have. Uh, isn't there? A, I believe there's a. There's a. Um, I believe there's a museum where they explain how Noah brought dinosaur eggs onto the ark. So, oh uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> could be, man. We don't know. Yeah, hey, what do we know? We weren't there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were not there. 
So yeah, tell us how. Give us some context about because the the flood myth is really what is like the eleventh tablet of the whole story. So that's just a part of the story, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just like uh, one part of the story, and that's like the conversation right. between uh, Gilgamesh and uh, Utnapishti. But we'll get to that. Um, I'll just give you like a um, little bit about the background about the epic and like because uh, like. If you have heard about the epic before, you know that uh, like um, scholars talk about like different uh, versions and uh, yeah. So like yeah. So tell us yeah. So there must there's different versions and everything. Yeah. Well, let's let's dig right in. Yeah. So like uh, the earliest version of the epic date back to as early as the third dynasty of uh, Ur, and that's like uh, two uh, twenty one hundred BCE. Uh, but uh, like those tablets are like they consist of like distinct stories and it's not like one uh single epic as we know it okay so like the earliest narrative of one single epic as we know it is the old babylonian tablets and those uh date back to 1800 bce okay wait so basically like for 300 years it was just a story I mean, there was... You know, it was just a story, and then they just kept embellishing on it until it became one big story. Yeah, exactly. It was, like, many stories about this uh, great king of uh, Uruk. And then, like... uh, And then later on, it became, like, one uh, one single story. Uh, You know what that reminds me of? It's like... Like Star Wars or something, you know, you see the first episode and then another and then another and then, you you know, eventually they ne- weave it into one tale with a backstory and a forward story and everything. Yeah, exactly. So, like... Amazing. There's two, like, main versions of the epic and they're both incomplete, but, like, fragments of later versions are still, like, are being used to fill in the gaps. Okay, and it's uh, like it's important to notice that like uh, fragments and versions of the epic are still being discovered and translated as we speak. So there are like hundreds of thousands of cuneiform tablets laying around in museums across the world, waiting to be translated. And of course, most of these consist of like legal documents and so on. But mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they will get like more uh, Gilgamesh. From these uh, tablets that would be good yeah <laughs> so um, there is some yeah yeah and uh, there's like a, I think there's around 73 different manuscripts that have been discovered wow uh, con- like uh, about the Gilgamesh and uh, wow. there's probably more by now since my source of information is a little bit old wow but uh, I was thinking, like, we'll focus on the standard Babylonian version in this episode. And that's the one that was found in the library of uh, Ashurbanipal. Perfect. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. And, uh, like, this so stand- when they found it, it was written in Babylonian and not uh, in Assyrian. I am actually not sure. And I'm not yeah. sure why it's called the Babylonian version. But, yeah, probably it was written in uh, Babylonian. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Um, yeah, and the, the the standard Babylonian version is the later one, uh, like it's the later version of uh, these two complete stories, and it's the best preserved one. And it's thought to have been edited by a Mesopotamian uh, 
I don't know, you can call him scholar or like, uh, yeah. Like a scribe, call. maybe. Yeah, a scribe. And I think they perform some like uh, exorcism. and. Uh, oh, yeah, that too. And uh, here comes the problem with uh, Akkadian names. Um, they're always a bit uh, uh, complicated, but I think maybe you say his name in this way Sinleki Unini. <laughs> you could do that one. Something <laughs> like that, I think. Uh, Sinleki Unini. Yeah, I think that's a better way of saying Sinleki Unini. Huh. Yeah, that sounds we'll, good. We'll call him Sam. Sid, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's <And> he, Sam. <laughs> I think uh, I think he lived between thirteen hundred and uh, one thousand BCE during like the hmm. Middle Babylonian period, and okay. his uh, edition was probably based on much older versions. Uh, yeah, so this is an old story, basically. I mean, yeah. if we at least say Homer was, you know. The story was about maybe 1200 BC, ish, you know, things that happened in the 1200, 1300 BC. Well, this story was, you know, just being, this story was a thousand years old already then. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is as old as, is it? Yeah, as it gets. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. Um, so, like, the standard Babylonian version consists of, like, uh, 12 tablets in total. And, uh, okay. Its name is like, um, uh, it goes by the name of its uh, opening words. And the opening words in uh, Akkadian is, uh, excuse me for my Akkadian, Sha Nagba Imuru. And uh, that yeah, means good. basically, he who saw the deep, which is describing like the epic's main message, uh, the story of the man who dived into the cosmic sea or Apsu which is the Akkadian word for it. Wow. And uh, Apsu is like very much a central theme in Mesopotamian mythology, and the name derives from the Sumerian word Absu, which means like the ocean of uh, wisdom. It's kind of like the universe, maybe, or in my opinion, you know, my opinion, or the Tao. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess you know, so. You I mean, it's a... Uh, uh, it's like uh, uh, the like the Mesopotamian creation myth Enuma Elish begins like when the above the heavens did not yet exist nor the earth below Apsu the freshwater ocean was there the first the begetter and Tiamat the saltwater sea she who bore them all they were still mixing their waters and no pasture land had yet been formed they're pretty accurate when you really think about it i mean uh, like the bible begins in a similar way and like i think the Tao is like similar like uh yeah it, like yeah all of these stories begin with like before there was anything it was like this thing and yeah yeah right it's just the unknown like the Tao is very um you know, it just talks about the Tao. You can't understand the Tao. Yeah. Actually, yeah, the so Tao basically starts with, if you think you know the Tao, you don't know the Tao. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> how does it go? It's like, uh, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao or something like that. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right, but it is like a common human, you know, theme to like try to understand. 
Yeah. You know. And I think like this is a very important thing to bring up about the epic. And I know like many scholars have talked about this, uh, including like uh, Simo Parpola, and he's like a professor in Assyriology. And he's mm-hmm. like spent his whole life studying the epic of Gilgamesh. And he says that like the epic is like full of uh, like esoteric hidden knowledge that is mm-hmm. like there to be understood by the people who right. uh, study and yeah. Which is why you're mentioning it is why they say one of the reasons that Asher Banipal went through the you know the his empire, the world at the time, basically, to get all the tablets they could because they wanted to get all that secret knowledge, and Epic of Gilgamesh was a part of it. Yeah. Big part of it. Exactly. I think they like uh, understood like uh, it was, I'm pretty sure they understood uh, like uh, how important it was to save like all these stories and documents for the future. Well, he did at that point anyway, for sure. Yeah. I think he he was like way before ahead of his time. Uh, yeah, I mean that was changed. it's essentially your first official library that's been, you know, for that reason that we know of anyway. Oh, uh, yeah. And I think like the first museum was uh, was by what, what was the last Babylonian king's name? Nabi Nabonidus. Yeah, Nabi. I think he he established a museum. Huh. Well, we're gonna look that one. Up. I'm not sure about this one, so yeah. Excuse me if I'm. We'll wrong. check it out. Yeah. That's okay. We're just fans of history. We could find. We'll find out. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, um, so who's Gilgamesh? Who's this Gilgamesh character, anyway? Well, um, I'll give you a little bit of like the historical uh, background. So, okay. uh, around uh, four thousand seven hundred years ago—that's uh, a very long time—lived uh, <laughs> a man in southern Mesopotamia who was called Gilgamesh, and uh, legends about this man lived on for uh, like a very long time all across the ancient, ancient uh, world. And uh, most stories about uh, Gilgamesh are, of course, mythological, but there are many reasons to believe that Gilgamesh was a historical king, as his name is mentioned in the Sumerian king list, as well as in other texts. Hmm. All right. And, uh, yeah, if you listen to this podcast before, you've heard about these king lists that the Mesopotamians right. love to uh, write. So uh, Gil- uh, Gilgamesh is uh, mentioned as the fifth king of the early dynastic period um, in uh, a Sumerian city-state called Uruk which means that he could have lived between uh, 2800 and 2500 BCE. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, very long time ago. And um, as you may know, like the ancient Mesopotamians had a profound interest in keeping records, uh, and the Sumerian king list was one of them. It lists like kings and dynasties of Sumer, and as well as like neighboring dynasties and the length of their reign. So, according to the king list, uh, Gilgamesh is said to have ruled uh, Uruk for 126 years. Oh, 126 years, huh? He's yeah. like a kid compared to some of them in that list, right? Yeah, exactly. But I think, like, uh, I think his uh, father, Lugalbanda, I think he ruled for, like, I don't know, 
thousand years or something like that. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder when Gilgamesh started ruling. Was his father already a thousand? It's like, yeah, it's anyway. Yeah, I think uh, I think his father was. Uh, I think he died, and then Gilgamesh like took over. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so, like the kingship in ancient Mesopotamia was thought like to be a like a gift from the gods, and the king was thought to be like the intermediator between like gods and his people. So it's very much like a huge responsibility to be king. Um, yes, for sure. Especially the time we're talking about. I mean, it's just it's everything's on the edge of life and death. You know, if, it, if you don't have crops, the whole city could die. You have raiders and wars and, I mean, yeah, big job. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the epic of Gilgamesh is, um, so it's a story of a young and ruthless king. Uh, so he's a very oppressive ruler. And according to the legend, uh, Gilgamesh is said to have been, like, a demigod. So he is two thirds immortal and one third divine, and um, his father, like I said, is said to have been uh, Lugal Banda, and his mother, the goddess Ninsen. That's a third. I don't. Under, I never could under quite understand that one. Right? They always. I know that they say that, but like if his father was half god and his mother was all god, then wouldn't he be like a quarter? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a bit. It's a bit weird. <laughs> But um, two thirds. But he's more god than human. I'm yeah. sorry. Two, two, no, two thirds god and one no. Yeah, two he's more man. god than he is human. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh um, well. Anyhow. Yeah. So, like in the beginning uh, of the story, yeah, Gilgamesh is uh, described as a young and ruthless king, and. Uh, he forces the men of Uruk to engage in like different kinds of games where he beats them and all uh, he like he beats them all and because he, he, he's like bigger and stronger and on top of that he forces all the brides to spend their first wedding night with him instead of their husband. Yeah, that no, wasn't that very nice. Uh, not nice at all, but. No. So, like, no one dared to oppose or challenge the mighty Gilgamesh, and the people of Uruk prayed to the gods for a change. And so here comes the supreme god, Anu, and um, he hears the people's prayers and uh, gives the task of creating an equal to Gilgamesh. Um, and uh, the goddess Aruru, uh, takes on this task and she creates the wild man Enkidu out of her. Ha! Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and yeah, this is another interesting thing. She creates him out of her spit and uh, some clay. Ah! And uh, I think there's some similarities to the Bible there. Oh, yeah. Or, wait, yeah. am I wrong? The God, I don't remember how God created Adam, but he created Eve from the, the rib. I uh, think yeah. he might have created Adam from some clay. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, usually the gods are, all gods are usually creating people out of clay and stuff, so it seems yeah. like a common thing. Yeah. That's so, not how you were created, right? From spit and clay? Spit and clay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Does anybody ever call you the wild man? Uh, no, nobody knows. No. Everyone's like, oh, really? Oh, my yeah, God. Like, everyone's like, oh, that's an unusual name. I've never heard it before. And then I have to go like, yeah, it's from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's like, yeah. And nobody, like, not many people are very interested. Oh, well, that's what I tell you. I hope my, <laughs> if Lily, my daughter Lily listens to this, I remember when she was in high school and she had just read the, had the Epic of Gilgamesh in school. She was learning it and she was very excited about it. I remember she enjoyed it. Maybe it was middle school. I don't remember. But I remember her always commenting on the, you know, Enkidu, the wild man, wild man Enkidu. Yeah. <laughs> um. So anyway, that's a shout out to Lily. But tell us something. Yeah, tell us some more. I'm sorry. Uh, No, it's all good. Um, So like Enkidu was like, he was made to compete with uh, Gilgamesh. He was like created as an equal. Um, All right. And that was like to, in order to like restore peace to the citizens of uh, Uruk. Uh, Right. They prayed for the gods to the gods, and the gods created Enkidu to calm them down. Yeah, exactly. So, like, uh, here's a little side note. Like, uh, Enkidu's uh, character was considered to be of a divine essence. And, like, one interpretation of the name Enkidu is that it means, like, the creation of Enki. And Enki was... The mo- one of the most important gods in the Mesopotamian. Oh, pantheon. I see. And it's not like it's not like Enki created Enkidu, but like Enki was the creator of mankind. I see. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance in there that you really you know scholars really still probably digging into what all the deep deep meanings of all of it is from their people of the time. Yeah. And there's a, there's another interpretation of the name, but I uh, I've forgotten. But yeah, anyway. So Enkidu didn't know that he was human when he grew up. So he grew up like on the steps with wild animals and identified himself with the animals. And uh, when like when the animals were captured in traps and stuff laid out by hunters, he released them from the traps and. Uh, yeah, so he, he basically grew up with the gazelles and other animals. Right. And, uh, but like, then comes one day and uh, a hunter manages to spot Enkidu. And uh, one of the, I think it's the hunter's son, he goes to Uruk yeah. to tell the great Gilgamesh about what he has seen as they're troubled by this wild man who ruins their hunt. Yeah, right. Like he's he's in the woods, he runs with the gazelles and antelopes, and when he sees something caught in a trap, he goes and lets them go, right? So yeah, it was like the hunter's the kid, the hunter's son or he sees the he sees him releasing him and he's afraid of him, right? So then he goes to his dad, father and his father says, "Go see Gilgamesh, he'll help you." Yeah, exactly. 
uh, and uh, then what happens? So Gilgamesh the fun gets part. Uh, like they go to Gilgamesh and they tell him like, "Oh, we've seen this uh, this uh, man, and he's like stronger than everyone else," and blah 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 blah. And then Gilgamesh like orders the hunter to return to the steps, but this time he should be accompanied by a prostitute named Shamhat. And she's going to seduce Enkidu and bring him back to Uruk. Aha, uh-huh. how'd that work out? Uh, well... Oh, darn, I'm going to have to end it right there. But don't worry, we'll be back with more of our favorite fan, Enkidu the Wild Man. And I will leave you with a little bit of Lily.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.